everyone, and welcome to the Future Space. I'm your host, Daniel Fox. Our guest today is Robert Feierbach. Robert has been a space industry leader and entrepreneur for nearly 30 years, working in Europe for the likes of CES Global and UTELSAT, and in the U.S. for companies like SpaceX and Maxar. He's president of Maritime Launch USA, the U.S. affiliate for Canada's first commercial spaceport based in Nova Scotia, founder and CEO of Zero-G Launch, and an executive director for an upcoming space-themed Hollywood film, Helios, which plans to begin shooting later this year. Robert, welcome to the future of space. Daniel, it's my pleasure to be here and share a few moments with you today. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about Hollywood and Zero-G, but before we get over there, could you share with us three words that for you capture the essence of space? I think first one has to be mesmerizing. Um, there's something about space that is just hard to grasp and, 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 and fabulous at the same time. Second word would be challenging. We all in our industry call it space is hard. And there's a reason why we say space is hard. It is difficult and it's very challenging. And third, it would have to be exciting. I mean, how much more exciting can, can, we, uh, can we make humanity than to go beyond our earthly frontier, right? So those would be the three I would choose, uh, Daniel. Now, mesmerizing, was, was space always mesmerizing for you, even as a, as a little kid, or that's something that you grew up into as you got older? Uh, it started when I was a very little kid. I, I, I know, um, when I was a very small kid, I, 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 I couldn't see very well, and I didn't know that um, I needed glasses, and neither did my parents, for that, for that matter. And I squinted a lot in class, but no one ever pointed out that I couldn't see very well. So I couldn't really see the stars very well. The day I got glasses, it must have been nine years old or maybe 10, I can't remember, I discovered the stars in the sky. And mind you, I was living in La Paz, Bolivia, in the Andes. So the skies are beautiful, uh, full of stars back then. Uh, and that, But that was my first discovery of these incredible, shiny, pristine objects in, in space that just got me enthralled into everything that has to do with the universe and stars and understanding why, why, these, you know, why the planets keep changing positions in the sky and things like that. There are a few other events as a kid, um, you know, that sometimes I, I connect and think, wow, was that maybe the moment? And another one was when we were up in the mountains one day doing one of our early morning 3 a.m. treks to go fishing or hunting in the mountains. And I saw these little pellets that looked like droplets and going in the same direction everywhere out there. And I asked my father, what in the world? These, these are like molten rock, but they all look like, you know, drain drops. He said, ah, I believe that must have been a small meteorite. They came in, melted, and then dispersed across the, the, the hillside here. He could see a depression. And that was his take of what could have happened there. And again, that, those are the kind of things that are just incredible to understand that we're surrounded by a live universe that we're in contact with here on Earth. So to me, that is really the, the essence of when I say mesmerizing, there's so much to learn that we are still 
we still don't know about. And there's so much that we are learning right now that just captures the imagination of people like me. Yeah, we're entering an era of, I think, experience and knowledge that is just going to completely redefine what it is to be human in this universe. Um, and we, we can go deep. I mean, actually, that's a perfect segue. I mean, beyond the, the science and the technology of going to space, because obviously that's a big part of it. But what is, what is the human story of going to space? Well, I think it goes way, in my opinion anyway, Daniel, it goes way, way back to the mere existence of intelligent life, intelligent humans, I should say, on Earth. I mean, if you look back at history, uh, you know, when you ran out of food in your immediate environment as cave people, perhaps, you had to go out, search further, go further away, maybe disappear for two, three days. And in those two, three days, you had to figure out how to not only survive the cold nights, perhaps, or how to find right shelter, or how to uh, defend yourselves from prey, or, or preying animals, or preying, you know, uh, other species and beings. And in every step of those, and we've been even maybe going back to the history when Yemen, so to speak, was the beginning of the you know Middle Eastern African uh, uh, civilization that went north to you know Rome and Greece and the big civilizations back there. Once those got sort of into a steady state where nothing much new was happening, people went further north. There they needed to get create new kinds of clothing because all of a sudden it was cold very cold at night and, and you had snow where they didn't have it down there uh, wherever they were and so every single time we do that we explore we invent we create new technologies and then from when europe then there was a mass exodus to come to your to to the americas similar things and we had to figure out better ships better technology to be able to to handle goods and and, and things like that and i think it's absolutely our imperative as humans to understand and to also be able to survive outside of our little rock, our beautiful earthly rock that we have here um, in, in our surrounding rocks, because we just don't know when uh, or we don't know uh, how uh, we will be stricken by another major rock that hits our earth it could be 100,000 years from now. It could be a half a million years from now, or it could be 10,000 years from now. Something will come in and will be beyond our, 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 our capability to defend against. And uh, we need to be able to preserve our history, our technology, our stories, our poetry, our love, everything else that we've invented over generations and generations of intelligent humans and and continue that somewhere else or in, externally from our earth i'm not saying i'm a doomsayer for earth but i think it's our it behooves us to do that it's our imperative to understand it and to be able to survive and thrive elsewhere as well as natural human explorer beings that we are yeah i was thinking of your of your three words mesmerizing challenging and exciting and basically that applies to every new boundaries that we push, whether, you know, when you're born in a village, you were, you were born in Bolivia, and then you see the mountains and you're mesmerized to see, you know, imagine what it would be like at the top or beyond the mountains. And now, obviously, 
after that, you have to figure out how to go there, climb up or go, I mean, past the mountains, which is the challenge. And then once you do that, then it's exciting. It's the same thing that happened when, you know, when we got on the, the beach and look over the horizons on the, on, on the ocean, it's mesmerizing to imagine what is beyond the horizon. And then you have to figure out how to get on the water and navigate these, these, these uncharted waters. And then once you pass that, then it's exciting. Space has been, now it's that for a lot of people, it's been mesmerizing just for the sake of having this world above our heads, not thinking that we had the capacity, but the challenges now it's being met and, and, and we go beyond and there's an excitement that has taken over. And we're continuing this story that we've started to, I mean, that life started to write millions of years ago, growing in complexity on the planet and now about to go multiplanetary and go beyond. Um, it's, there's, there's, I think we, we don't give ourselves enough credit as the human species. I think that, you know, I don't, I don't believe life is just messy. Evolution is complicated by nature because it demands a certain pushing the boundaries to figure out how to move to the next place. But the humans is, are definitely good at taking what nature has given them and go beyond. I mean, nature has given us, didn't give us the clothes that we have or the roof that we have over our heads. You know, we're born into this world extremely naked and at the mercy of everything else. And somehow we've figured out how to create a world that can give us longevity and access to options that the animal world is, you know, kind of limited uh, 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 in their, in their, Lives is that something that that you agree with? Oh, completely. I mean, th think about you know one thing that I think about very often that I talk with people who are not really space people, right? Over a dinner or something like that, is that just to understand and realize that everything that is here on Earth came from somewhere else, right? That we're surrounded by extraterrestrial beings, the gold that we have, the plutonium that's here. The, the the calcium that is on Earth came from you know supernova explosions or 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 or, uh, or huge uh, uh, interstellar uh, uh, exchange of masses that have been traveling over you know, you know hundreds of billions or, or tens of billions of years, and when you realize that everything we're stepping on and even when we pinch ourselves you know our skin everything else we have extrastellar DNA there right. Uh, it wasn't, it didn't create itself. We didn't make it, like you say, we didn't create anything here. We are made from stars, right? And that is just, a, it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about because everything here and all, even all the, all the precious, precious metals uh, are not creating themselves here on earth. They came from somewhere else, right? And that's pretty crazy to think about when you think mountains and an enormous, uh, continents full of different kinds of minerals and different kinds of exploitable, uh, you know, uh, compounds and things like that, that we, that we use for our, you know, to, to better our everyday life came from somewhere else, came from up there. And it's, it's pretty crazy. I think. I mean, I, I mean, we take things for granted. I mean, obviously, you know, you have the, the saying about the two fish that speak to 
each other and then they don't realize that they're swimming in the water that they're that they're there they are and yesterday when i was on the plane and just a, a side note but i was on the plane and i was trying to think of the wright brothers when they were creating you know pushing the boundaries and obviously they're looking at the, the sky and how to fly they would not even understand what we're doing today but the the thing that kind of got stuck in my head is when I got up and I went to the bathroom and I'm thinking, I don't even think that the Wright brothers understand that now we have this group of people that are up and they have meals, they eat, they, they send emails and then they go to the bathroom while up in the sky. And now we look at we 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 look at the future. We look at the space, and we we. It's hard for us to understand how a future in space can exist because right now our understanding of the challenges is right now. But in fifty years, in a hundred years, we we'll look back, and what is challenging today will be considered. Uh, you know, it's just that they hadn't figured it out, but it will be taken for granted at that moment, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's all a question of evolutionary steps that we're taking as humans, right? Uh, we can't imagine 20 years from now what we will be doing with electronics and consumer electronics at that. I mean, when you look 20 years back, where we were without the iPhone, for example, right? I mean, so many things have changed that, uh, you know, we're we're developing and it, and it's and it's always a stepwise evolution from one to the next to the next and uh, you know I remember playing around with uh, uh, I think we used twelve car batteries when I was uh, eighteen years old I was in California and I was with some with, at some friend's house there in, in uh, Montecito across the bay in San Francisco and and we thought we had this big electrical motor that they that uh, their father had in the shop and we thought. Hey, what if we power this car just with batteries? And can we rig a system up there? So we put 12 car batteries in the back of this uh, car, and the car was, you know, basically almost to the ground because it was so heavy in the back. But we were able to go about a mile and a half, or maybe two miles, before the batteries died, right? With a pulley driving the uh, the uh, the front wheel of this car. So, I mean, who would ever imagine? that we would have these tiny little cell phone batteries, lithium ion cell phone batteries, so compact, so energy uh, uh, powerful that now we could put a few thousands of those and then power a car and let alone have power a car very comfortably and take you three, 400 miles uh, of, you know, of range with one charge. I mean, we are just developing so many wonderful things here that are, that are you know, many times based on some research that we're doing in space as well, which a lot of people don't know, right? Now, talking about pushing those boundaries, you're, you started in Bolivia. Now you are in Washington. You've been in Europe in telecommunication. Um, you're building spaceport. You're involved in building a spaceport in Nova Scotia and about to launch um, a zero-g launch, uh, zero-gravity uh, planes. Can you, I mean, tell us how, how did all come about and specifically the spaceport in Nova Scotia, what, what, are, what are the plans for that? And the zero G, what are you trying to accomplish with, uh, with these flights? Yeah, uh, as you said, um, uh, Daniel, I, I've been around in, in the industry. Um, I mean, I was actually born in California, but I was raised in Bolivia. 
to an American father, but uh, because we spoke three languages at home and uh, I was exposed to German and Spanish and English. Uh, uh, and then I really had this, in, this itching to go to Europe again. And I'd been in France and in Austria for a year at a time when I was younger. Uh, and, and I had this itching to go back when I got my master's degree. So I took the lowest paying job that was offered me, but it was the one that offered me to go to Europe right away. So we went to the Netherlands uh, with my wife and I, and that was my first sort of taste of what it was like to, to be in the space industry. And we're working for Echostar back then that, you know, uh, was just going to, to, to ride the wave of the small pizza sized dish that was never done before with, with the KU band, right? And that really made the market explode there. And so I went through my career, you know, through doing uh, basically broadcast services on video and analog, where you had, uh, you know, one analog channel per transponder to sticking five or six digital uh, MPEG-2 channels in that same channel or transponder, if you call it, to doing digital compression in MPEG-4 and putting 16 or 15 channels. Uh, a lot of people said back then, oh, satellite's dead because, you know, uh, uh, we're going to run out of channels uh, and, uh, and and the price will, will drop. The opposite happened. Thousands and thousands of TV channels were enabled then to afford to take the ride on, on the broadcast channels of those satellite operators to be able to, to uh, diffuse their, their, their broadcast channels around. And then we went from there to two-way satellites, um, you know, uh, data, of course, uh, uh, from the geostationary orbit. And now we're doing that same with uh, small constellations or even large constellations of LEO satellites in low Earth orbit, which are going to last three to four or five years, not 15 years, but they allow us to refresh that technology much quicker, much easier, and they're smaller satellites, so therefore they're cheaper. Again, taking advantage of a lower cost technology and, and lower, uh, lower cost to access uh, uh, and launch those satellites to near to lower Earth orbit. So through my career, I've seen these different evolutions. And then, you know, obviously working with SpaceX as well, the, the understanding the rocket uh, part of the whole equation and how that works and how difficult that is uh, and seeing uh, with tremendous respect, SpaceX just take a domineering role today in the in the launch business, creating new models. You know, bringing rockets back, um, uh, creating models where you can lower the cost of of, uh, of kilogram to, to put your technologies into orbit. So, working with the Maritime Launch uh, has been a real pleasure for me because I've been working as a consultant uh, with uh, Steve Matier, the CEO of, of Maritime Launch in Nova Scotia who came from the uh, space shuttle kind of uh, side uh, from NASA. He was originally from uh, New Mexico. He moved his entire family to Nova Scotia because he thought this is a wonderful place to develop a spaceport. He thought with that northeastern reach of the island, you could go to so many different inclinations and there was no better place in all of Northern, Northern America, as a matter of fact, to launch to as many places as you want to go, especially in low Earth orbit. So. I uh, worked with him, and then uh, uh, when finally uh, uh, the 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 company uh, got the first twenty million dollars uh, equivalent, roughly, in, in, in financing, and they got the okay from the country, from the from uh, the government of Canada, to begin construction late last year in September, 
uh, that's when, when uh, uh, you know, right before that, that's when uh, Steve asked me to join the company uh, to, build, to, to establish the U.S. Uh, affiliate of uh, the spaceport Nova Scotia so that we have also that U.S. access to, to uh, not only U.S. technologies for certain things that we need uh, in the preparation of the spaceport. I mean, you have propellant systems, you have uh, launch tracking systems, you have, uh, uh, um, you know, all, all kinds of uh, support infrastructure that has to be built there. And so we need to have a good interface with uh, with uh, not only the U.S. Uh, providers of, so, of those, but also with the satellite, small satellite uh, value chain in terms of manufacturing, uh, in terms of operators and so forth, that to, uh, uh, to have those customers launch from Spaceport Nova Scotia. And one of the things that I really have a tremendous respect for Steve on for having endured not only five plus years uh, in trying to get a license uh, uh, to, to, from the government to, to actually be an operator and launch rockets from Canada, not an easy thing, I have to say, uh, is, uh, is the fact that he engaged himself in social license. And by that, I mean, he spent the time with the uh, local uh, fire, fire, fire department, uh, with the local community, the First Nations, uh, the local pizza uh, um, uh, delivery uh, or the uh, pizza maker there in town and so forth. And over the course of uh, uh, these four and a half to five years, he was able to obtain an approval rate, which we, we did. Uh, we did a market study to see what the approval rate is of, of, of Spaceport Nova Scotia. It's nearly 90% because he engaged himself to become a fixture and a part of that social makeup of, uh, of Nova Scotia. And that is why He's been, he has the backup now, not only of the government uh, of, of, uh, of Canada in terms of allowing him to launch and allowing Mar Maritime Launch to launch from there, but he's got the absolute support of the local community. And I think that's a really important thing to, to, to mention here, because that's a big differentiator, I think, from the way other spaceports have done it uh, with, you know, with some big investments and in saying, here we are, and we're going to create lots of jobs and just wait and see. And of course, there, some of them are still waiting and seeing see what happens right always through the people first and then after that because i strongly believe that usually people are not against by default the progression or evolution what 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 they always have trouble with obviously is dealing with change but if you can get them on board it's always you know more exciting for the people once they understand what is their future beyond, you know, after this change? Is there is there a timeline? Are you in a position to establish to to share a timeline for the for the spaceport? Yeah, uh, the the uh, uh, spaceport Nova Scotia and Maritime Launch is a is a public company, so therefore disclosures have to be very, very public on anything that's happening there. Um, the first suborbital launch um, is being prepared now for July this year, and that is a test flight that will involve uh, obviously uh, Transport Canada as the regulator for clearing launches and so forth. The regulator, the local regulators, also the local police and everybody else to make sure everybody understands what normally happens around, even if it's just a test flight, it's something that we want to be able to perform uh, to kind of get the system wet, to start, start, start the process there. Uh, the road has already been built 
uh, over the 350 acre lot that uh, are uh, yeah, nearly 350 acre lot that has been leased from the crown. Uh, and, uh, and, the, and, I, and I'm happy to say that it now goes all full length all the way to the, to the pad where we're going to start building the cement pad to uh, support that first uh, suborbital launch. So things are happening there. It's very exciting to see all these big yellow trucks, you know, going in and out. And now you can actually drive with a normal car instead of walking one and a half hours, like we did from the edge of the spaceport to the middle where we were going to launch with big boots and wellies that kind of got stuck in the med, mud as we walked in there. And uh, now you can actually drive all the way there. So it's a really exciting time for us because, you know, you can see the 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 spaceport taking shape right now and it's a, it's exciting for me to see and it's, i'm sure it's exciting for my teammates in canada as well seeing that take place place over there and it will be exciting for a lot of canadians also i have i have, I have to share and i get goosebumps just telling you this but we were on the ferry the last day that i was down in the caribbean we were in the ferry um from saint bart to saint martin and um it gotten dark, the sun had gone down, and I look up and I see this bizarre jellyfish phenomenon in the sky, and I'm going, what is this going on? Realizing that it was SpaceX who had just left um, LA the, uh, on, on the West Coast, and here we were all the way down into the Caribbean being mesmerized by this phenomenon and it brought it brought me right back to Gattaca, you know, when like the Ethan's character keep looking up and just having this this gateway to the stars through watching these rockets going. And more and more, the world is going to be exposed to the visual beauty of these launches, and it's just going to bring a certain sense of um, getting in it all together and, and having this spaceport in Canada. Now you're going to have all the, 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 the population around that region to experience that kind of, uh, phenomenon, right? Correct. Correct. And I think it's an exciting time for, for sure, because Canada doesn't have, or hasn't had a commercial spaceport ever, uh, that launches to, to orbit. So uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, not only an exciting thing for Canada, but it's a, it's an exciting thing for Northern America because right now the spaceports are having so much activity in the East Coast and the West Coast of the U.S. that they, frankly they're getting pretty bogged down with with mission uh, demands for uh, from different operators and, and in particular different uh, uh, rocket systems that are now coming online to be able to become more operational. That there's more capacity needed uh, to be able to uh, accommodate them. So it's a it's a great time and great timing, I would say. Also, uh, we have quite a bit of demand. We've had up to date close to 12 operators that have approached us to, to, uh, with interest of uh, uh, also launching from Canada. So it's a, it's a good time for, uh, I think, Canada and, and for Northern America in general as well. Now, before we get into Helios, the movie that you somehow got involved into, you're now you're an executive producer, talk to us about the Zero-G launch uh, company. Sure. Um, this is my my baby. Uh, uh, it's 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 something that uh, it's a company that comes as a result of what I've seen over these last thirty years, in terms of certain uh, areas of our space industry that that still need responding to in terms of solutions. Uh, one of the other things I've always loved as well, Daniel, is uh, aircraft. Uh, it's just seeing an airplane. I, I remember 
even as even in in the situation that wasn't the best of all where I was at one of the one of the revolutions in, in Bolivia when I was 11 years old. And I remember seeing these uh, P-49 aircraft that had the little teeth, you know, uh, painted on the sides. And they would come and dive down into the street where we lived and then shoot, uh, you know, their machine guns from their wings. And I could see the light, uh, you know, in the wings. And then I would see a few seconds later the bullets coming down the street in front of our house and then taking up again and going and just marveling at how these aircraft could, you know, navigate between buildings and so forth and zip by our house. As horrible as that was, because obviously they were shooting people or shooting, you know, uh, shooting something that wasn't another aircraft. Um, those kind of things fascinated me, just that the, the the, the the way we can navigate with rockets and aircraft and so forth. So one of the things that is, that is missing right now in the space industry is a very viable, super high quality microgravity environment to test your equipment, to test your astronauts, uh, to before you send them to space. And there are a couple companies doing that around the world today uh, in their local countries. Um, we are are planning on providing a network of six of these aircraft around the world uh, to perform very, very high quality, high performance uh, parabolic flights uh, for the industry. And so that's our first phase of our business is to, to create this network of six aircraft. We will start with two um, and, uh, and then expand that, putting regional teams to be able to provide those flights for the industry that needs it today. That's a, that's a big need today instead of having to to, to launch to the ISS each time and wait a few, you know, wait for a year or two before you can get up there and then get your experiments back and then have to redo another one. We could provide a lot quicker, easier access to those kind of repeatable, repeatable um, zero gravity or microgravity environments for testing and developing, you know, all kinds of different systems and, uh, and compounds and things like that as well. Second phase of that will be modifying the underbelly or a few of these aircraft, not all, so that we could, uh, uh, do air launch services. And by that, I mean, we're not creating rockets or hypersonic vehicles ourselves. We are the carrier of those that are developing those systems. And there's also a very big market today for, in particular, the hypersonic market uh, area and the DOD sector this, uh, that, that needs um, commercial capability to augment the uh, national capability that is provided for by Air Force and, and Navy and so forth to be able to quickly iterate and quickly develop these kind of technologies from the underbelly of an aircraft by actually carrying these vehicles, drop testing them, uh, doing captive carries and, and doing launches as well. So a few of them will be modified for that. Again, this kind of goes to my my liking of, you know, aircraft uh, and aeronautics, although I could never be a pilot because I had bad eyesight and I never thought myself I could be, but uh, it's it's our baby and uh, we're, we're planning on uh, deploying six of these around the world. So, yeah. Are you also um, uh, in a position to share a timeline for, for zero? When will be the first one and where and uh, and the second one? Yeah, we, we are uh, currently in a, in a Series A round, uh, fundraising uh, um, round right now. Uh, if we're able to, to finalize this within another two months or so, close it, uh, we should be flying by this time or, mi or mid-year next year with the first aircraft. Uh, so this is the... This is what we hope to, to see happening. Obviously, we're, we're bullish about it, and we hope it does uh, close and everything goes fine. But uh, 
it all depends, of course, on getting that uh, Series A closed. Uh, and we've hired a, uh, an investment bank to do that already. Well, with your experience and uh, previous success, Robert, I'm uh, pretty confident that next year uh, you'll be flying. So <laughs> I won't be flying it, but I'll be flying in it. <laughs> in it, yes, absolutely. Right. And now I want, I, I do I want to be mindful of your time, but I do want to spend enough time also for an exciting project that now you're involved with, which is a Hollywood movie that in, it's not just a bounce space, but their partners is going to allow you to film in space, correct? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I need to explain that. Um, uh, not exactly, but uh, the, it's a space-themed Hollywood production, uh, obviously a sci-fi uh, action movie. Uh, I've been, uh, I, I want to use the word conscripted to, to participate in the movie. I read the uh, uh, script. I loved it. There were a few things that I thought maybe should be changed to make it more realistic. But the producers really wanted to make the, the movie as realistic as possible of things that actually can and will happen in space in the next uh, decade or so. And so when I criticized the, uh, the script, I said, could you be a little more precise and tell us where and where? So we signed an NDA and I, I did that. And uh, Garrett Reisman, the uh, commander astronaut, also had done some notes. So we combined these, created uh, all these different sort of eras in the story where real space companies can come in and be the protagonists or have a role to play in the in this you know fabulous save the world kind of story, right? And uh, and so they uh, constructed me to to kind of uh, bring some of these space companies, real space companies, into the storyline, and then bring them into the actual script as well, so that they can display not only their obviously their brand and so forth, but they have a role in the story of the film. So it's been kind of a fun fun uh, project. Uh, We've announced that uh, uh, Blue Origin is going to be uh, displaying the orbital reef in the movie. Uh, we have signed another agreement that is not yet uh, published, but we will be uh, announcing very soon. And a third one, uh, we're going after six or seven space brands, well-known space brands. And the third one will be, uh, I think, imminently signed so that we could also have it as an announceable in the next, uh, I don't know, two months or so. We'll kind of time them out there, but it's kind of a fun thing to see this thing take place because I'm not a movie person. I've never done anything with production and so forth and working with these uh, producers and understanding how the offers go out to certain actors and actresses and having some conversations uh, from time to time with some of them is, is kind of exciting. And I have to say, it makes me happy to see that, it, uh, that you know, the, uh, the whole theme and the whole uh, movie itself will be pretty faithful to what actually can happen in 2030, when Helios, the movie, uh, is supposed to be taking place, you know, the, the story anyway. And what's the, uh, the premise of the story? Well, the premise of the story is that the, uh, the sun is uh, acting up and creating tremendous coronal mass ejections, like they do every year, of course. But now it's acting up a lot more than it ever has. So it's, been, it's starting to fry some of the electronics on Earth. Some of the uh, uh, some cars are not, are not able to start up anymore. Uh, some things are starting, the electrical grids are having a lot of issues. The ISS now is in 2030 in its final year or so of operation, uh, at least as of what we know right now. And this uh, scientist heroine who had previously been, been involved with a satellite uh, constellation 
that had very, very strong uh, radio frequency links between them, uh, obviously magnetic uh, uh, radio frequency links between them, uh, is brought out of retirement, basically, and rushed to a rocket to go up to space so that she can re-enable this constellation to save the world, basically, right? And that's, it's, it's a save the world story, but it's a save the world story with as much realism as possible uh, into the actual feasibility of what happens in the storyline uh, as it plays out. So I don't, as a, as a space person, I don't want to ever be criticizing, oh, that would never happen in space. Oh, what you put in that movie was just garbage. No, 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 no. We don't want that and the producers don't want that. So thus, uh, I'm involved in that as well. Uh, on a very part-time basis, obviously, but uh, uh, I'm doing my part too to make sure that we get the right companies and the right uh, opportunities for companies to display their role in the story of the movie. Now you mentioned Blue Origin and Orbital Reef, so their participation in the movie will be more as a consultant, or there will be an actual kind of replica, and and their Orbital Reef will be presented in the in the movie itself yeah uh, that's actually a valid question because obviously you know we we, could, we would imagine that we want uh some segments or some people would imagine we would be filming segments in space with the technology that exists today you don't have to film any everything in space you know blue green screen technology has gotten so good uh, it's expensive to film things in space and we don't have to do that so blue origins orbital reef is a part of the story as a space station where the, the scientist heroine has to go in. And from there, she has to reactivate the whole system to, to turn on the satellites uh, to save the world. Uh, but uh, we, we're not necessarily filming anything in space rather than because uh, we're, we're starting filming at some point later this year. So uh, we're not going to be, you know, contracting SpaceX or anybody else to, to go and, and contract some, some, some place for uh zero gravity uh, uh, filming, but uh, a lot of that can be done, as I say, with uh, green, green screen technologies that are pretty, pretty good now and can, can, can make, give it that good sense of, uh, of or flying in space. So we have uh, obviously working, working, working very closely with uh, Blue Origin. Uh, we'll be having a lot of 3D, 3, 3D kind of graphics and things like that that we will render into the movie. Uh, so that uh, we can see the astronauts and so forth, uh, you know, navigating inside the uh, structures of the orbital reef rocket. So, yeah, uh, a lot of that will be done uh, with very, very cool new technology that exists today for, uh, you know, uh, visual effects. Well, I'm looking forward to attend the premiere uh, uh, with uh, with you, Robert. I'm pretty sure it's going to be fun. Um, you and your wife have a couple tickets. Uh, you know, you got you got yourself on the list, Daniel. Excellent. <laughs> Looking forward. Listen, Robert, as someone who had such a rich life of different, experiencing different culture from, you know, you mentioned being born in the U.S., growing up in Bolivia, these planes uh, shooting around and living in Italy and uh, Washington, D.C. and involved in space. What I, it, when you look back what are for you, what would be your three words of wisdom for, for someone who's looking into embarking on their life journey and making, making the best of it? What would be your three words of wisdom? Wow. It's, it's kind of a, um, there's so many good, so many things that I have 
self-analyzed in terms of how I've been with people over the years. I've seen some very aggressive and not very likable people, and I've seen some very, very likable and totally non-aggressive people and everything in between, right? And how does one want to be and how does one want to be a good addition to the human race kind of ideas that you always think about sometimes, right? To yourself in those quiet moments. <laughs> and uh, um, I guess words of wisdom to me is um, one of the things that I really, really uh, never want to be labeled as is as being non-reliable. So reliability, the opposite, is really key for me. And I think as a word of wisdom for anybody, and it doesn't matter what kind of job you're doing, what kind of industry you're in, be reliable. If you say something, if you say you're going to deliver on it, do so. Don't just talk about it. Don't just uh, say something to make someone feel good uh, on it. If you say it, do it, but be reliable. So that's one, right? The other is um, humanity. And by that, I mean, be a, be a real human. People have different kinds of personalities. Uh, people, uh, some people have some very, very strong and, and, and uh, energetic personalities. And some others are very, very relaxed and, and Zen sort of in their, in the way of being, um, be aware that a lot of people will see how you interface with them in a different way and listening, being human, understanding, where they're coming from, understanding where they come from, uh, ethnically, uh, uh, politically, uh, geographically, all those things influence how people react to you and how you react to them. So I think huma humanity, by, by meaning, you know, you're saying, you know, uh, being as, as a real human or as human as you possibly can by understanding these things, I think it's really, really, really important, right? Uh, maybe the last one, um, uh, from, from my point of view is, um, um, believing in something strong enough that, uh, that it hasn't, ha doesn't have to be this pie in the sky idea, but believing in something and being true to it so that you as a person are happy, right? Uh, because you believe in it and it's something that you believe you're not only makes you go wow when you get up in the morning and makes you get excited when you get up in the morning, but believing it enough that uh, it drives you and it drives your happiness level in life because it's something that it means a lot to you and and, and you believe in it so that, uh, you know, I, 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 I have known and I have some people that I know friends from my age group uh, from, from college or, and, or uh, high school who, just can't wait for retirement and to start living their lives and they're not happy. And I just don't understand that, Daniel. You know, I mean, I, I really feel that it's important to identify something and, be, and believe in it and then just do it. Uh, you don't, it doesn't have to be a big money making thing, but it has to be something that you really truly believe inside of you because that's how everybody finds their reason for being in life, you know? And uh, I think that's an important thing. Um, in my life, uh, and it, it drives me every day. It makes me happy when I wake up in the morning. Yeah, having that North Star, whether it's you know value, but also and what do you want to accomplish in the world, so that 
that when you navigate through these ups and downs, you still have that passion and that desire to come up. And I think it's, it's, I mean, I do believe that it's a luxury that our societies have now, we now find ourselves in. If I look back into the, the stories of our ancestors where living was not living and living was surviving. They had, you know, they had to, to figure out how to, to put food on the table. And you read the stories of, uh, uh, explorers navigating the oceans or, or almost killing themselves so that they can record the, the weather in Antarctica. Um, I think that back in those days, it was not really about what can they do to, 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 bring passion and meaningful. It was really, I need to, I need to figure out how to sort of, you know, provide to my family moving forward. But now we are living in the society and the culture where more and more, not everyone, but more and more, these questions can be asked so that you find a better meaning and navigate, navigate this life where we're going to be living longer. And there's not this idea of like, well, working for 60 years and then retiring because you have another maybe 60 years and 70 years. So how can you actually be productive into society for a hundred years? And you're always participating. You're always doing something rather than just working. And then after that, disconnecting and um, going and sit at the beach somewhere uh, where yeah. I'm not too you sure. Know, that. Let me add to what you just said, because I think, you're very, very right, Daniel, that being able to think about these things is a bit of a luxury, maybe uh, of, of, you know, civilizations that are a bit more advanced and we're more comfortable and we have a lot more that we can think about these things. Um, but there's also that very, very sort of primal, almost very simple uh, environment that also can uh, create um what I'm what I'm trying to say in terms of your reason for being right, without having to scrap being if you're scrapping, you know, to just survive and eat every day, uh, you're not going to be able to think about things of life very much other than how can I survive to get my my bit of food. But I'll give you an example of one case. My father, since he was an avid hunter and fisherman, he used to go out a lot to the Andes, and and he remembered uh, uh, the story of of this priest that was out there in a tiny little church, you know, in the Altiplano. And, uh, and this priest uh, had just arrived. He was an American priest and he had just arrived and he, um, he saw that the local potato farmers uh, had a certain yield and he said, hey, you know what? I'm gonna show you how to use a very, very special thing called fertilizer. So he, he imported some fertilizer and he asked them to, you know, put some of that in the dirt and so forth. Well, the next year the yield was so large that the local farmer said, I don't know what to do with all these potatoes. I have too many. I don't have the means to, to take them in my donkey or my llama to take them to the local markets and so forth. I just have too many, right? And, and he had suggested that they import some more fertilizer again. He said, no, 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 no. I don't want anything. I want things just like they were before. I was happy and I was content and I could go out at night uh, light up my little cigarette and look at the stars at night, take care of my llamas, and I had a happy life. And they did not want that next step. So, you know, you find your reason for being in the environment that you're in, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's 
what we believe it should be. Uh, it's what they believe it should be or what the person believes it should be. And that's what I was trying to say is, you know, find your your raison d'être, right? So find your thing yeah. that, that, that tells you this is what I am about. And it could be as simple as that, or it could be as lofty as what you want it to be, but it's got to be something that drives you, right? And so a wonderful way to, to end this conversation. And I, I do want to point out yesterday, I was watching this uh, little video piece that was talking about longevity, you know, studying the, the science and the technology of it. But the, the host was in Japan because Japan is being looked pretty closely for longevity. There's a lot of people aging well and longer. And the Japanese person, the representative was talking about the idea of Ikigai in Japanese, which is your purpose. It's figuring out exactly where you sit in that equation and be content with it. And that despite, and the conclusion was that Ikigai, this raison d'être, this purpose was actually one of the best foundation for longevity, for giving you um, a, a sense of aging into the, the, the future. Yes, the technology will allow you to do it, but ultimately it's that purpose, it's that ikigai that allows you to age gracefully and be productive into our society. Robert, you and I, we always, always have amazing conversation. Usually we have a bottle of wine, but the, 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 it's a little bit harder, but we will have um, another meal together, sharing food, breaking bread, having a glass of wine, continuing this conversation. I'm very much looking forward to that, Daniel. Uh, you just let me know when and I'll be there and we'll, we'll share that bottle of wine together. <laughs> Excellent. Until then, good luck with, uh, with the movie. And then uh, we're looking forward to see you uh, fly uh, zero G and uh, congratulations on the space sport in Canada. Thank you, Daniel. Talk to you soon.